Welcome, travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. This is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides along the journey to RPG adventures. We are all D&D role players and storytellers at heart. It's where we started out, and it's where we find ourselves most at home. So here in our main podcast episodes, we discuss the core rules, how to use them as written, and how to homebrew your own content to get the most out of your story. Because detailed settings, heroic characters, vibrant NPCs, and a focus on story over rules is what makes a campaign legendary. Here's a message from friends of the show. No one knows where it began, and no one knows when it will end. But every single being in this realm knows war. War is chaos, but in their hands it's more. They attack with cold and methodical precision, as though they mean every death, every scar, and every orphaned child. They are not fighting to survive as we are. They're fighting for the win, for glory, for balance. Seeing the atrocities of the balances indirectly through the imaginings of words can never pale in comparison to seeing them firsthand. The experience could be likened to an unfeeling, to non-existence. Perhaps, in the shadows of our enemies, you seem insignificant and, if it were up to them, you would be. However, I am here to say, you are not. The balances strive only to kill you and step over you to the next one in line. With you in their path, they are one step further from the next, one step further from your friend, one step further from your family. You are the most important piece in this fight, and joining is the right thing to do. Hi, I'm Kel of Awfully Queer Heroes. What you just heard is a portion of lore from my current Kickstarter. It was recorded and edited by the good people of Control Group, who can be found on Twitter. The Kickstarter is a level 1 to level 20 campaign, where you fight as the forces of chaos against the oppressive forces of order and balance. It has new playable races, merging with elementals, a fully randomised tower, and so much more. A link to the campaign can be seen in the description below, and I hope to see you there. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode. We are once again going to be diving into a class in depth from Dungeons & Dragons 5e. And tonight, Glenn, Liwanika, and I are going to be tackling one of the most popular classes in the game right now. We talked Warlocks last time. Now we're going to start talking about kind of the opposite end of the coin, the Paladins. This is a class that has got a tremendous amount of history, a tremendous amount of depth. Uh, We're going to do a a two-parter here tonight where we kind of talk about Paladins in general and dive into uh, the depth of all the powers and everything like that. And then our part two, as usual, is going to be a really deep dive into the subclasses the oaths for the uh the particular paladins but uh but as always uh joined tonight with uh my beloved co-hosts glenn and luanika uh gentlemen how are you doing this fine thursday evening i am having an amazing day uh i i worked very hard i took a large brisket out of the oven that had been slow cooking for six hours i am famished (laughs) and ready to talk paladins so we're going to be talking tonight about paladins. Now, uh, we want to start tonight with uh, our history with paladins and the history of the paladin class. Uh, and gentlemen, if you don't mind, I'm going to start here because my history with the paladin class is very 
very brief. Uh, we were talking in our in our pre-show discussion. I have never actually played a paladin uh, somehow. Somehow this has never happened. Um, and, <laughs> oh, <excuse me. laughs> no. So well, and, and so I think that that's sort of the conceit here, right? Is that uh, uh, Nico was surprised that my uh, uh, my Shut. ultra. Shut. Zealotus, uh, uh, Elven Archer Androsius was not a paladin, but I, I, I hand, hand to God, no pun oh, intended. Elves can't be paladins; they're too flighty. Uh, I, I, I can promise you, there was at least, yeah, there was at least one, if not fifteen to twenty conversations in which any number of my characters who played at the same time as Androsius was saying to an NPC with Benito running them, "I hate that damn Elven paladin." I, uh, I am 100% confident that a character or 14 that I mentioned uh, I played has has issued great dismay at uh, Androsius and his actions, though not quite as bad as not quite as bad as Mark's dwarf who got his people shot in the back. But we but we digress. We digress. We digress. So, 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 so wait, wait, Androsius yeah. was not a paladin. Was not a paladin, no. He was a straight-up fighter, but he was super zealous. So and I think we're going to get into that. How many characters did you have, Lee, that were totally miscon- misconstrued about this? Or No, just one character, but... One character, and he and he he led 14 NPCs down the Primrose Path that yeah. Androsius must have been a paladin because of his uh, utter devotion. Uh, so uh, and- Androsius was not a paladin. He was a sort of a xenophobic bigot. <laughs> <laughs> so so re- read into that connection what you will <laughs> yeah best described as an elf who really likes elves and really looks down on everybody else most specifically humans and for whatever reason i've tended to almost always play humans uh a few half elves here or there not androsius's favorites either but almost always humans. And if, and while we have been cohorts, comrades, friends at arms, we've defended each other, we've saved each other, uh, there was always that back and forth. So for those who are thinking, like, how do you make parties that get along but don't get along, Josh and I did that exceptionally well uh, with his characters. And the long-lived elf in a multi-generational uh, campaign, he played Androsius over a couple different campaigns, whereas I'm playing... Whereas I played one human from a family and played three generations of that family at the same time, and it was a beautiful thing. But still not a paladin. But not a paladin. Thanks for bringing us back, Glenn. So, so how, how about how about you, Glenn? What about your history with paladins? Where uh, uh, where have you sat on the paladin scheme? I've had mixed feelings about paladins. We won't talk to you about the word play we used a minute ago that just got cut out, but I had to start again because it went all kinds of to a dark, well, not a dark, just a naughty place. Naughty. Hmm? Um, anyway, so I've always had mixed feelings about paladins because, you know, there's, there's two sides there, right? There's the kid who wants to look up to the quintessential knight in shining armor who's so pure and so devoted that he's not just a knight. He's like a knight with powers, you know, because his, his belief and his honor and his, all of his stuff is so strong. But then there's the concept when you're 14, 15 of trying to truly play a lawful good character you're, when you really just want to half the time murder hobos and people and steal their stuff. So I didn't play a whole lot of paladins when I was younger. My favorite early paladin experience was reading about Sturm Brightblade in the Dragonlance novels who was an awesome character and a lot of fun, despite the fact that his party also was frustrated with him back in the day of lawful good paladins who always did the right thing. Though I was horribly, horribly upset with the way that he died. Not that he died defending everybody, but that he got to take like one slit out of that dragon's nose before Katara skewered him, as opposed to at least beheading the (laughs) beast and then dying. (laughs) That annoyed me. (laughs) Moving on, back on track. Uh, I'll say my piece about about Sturm in that particular fight as well because I got I got some words. Bring it. No, I want I you. Mean, to for finish. the most part, Mrs. What Miss Weiss and Hickman spun a fantastic tale, but they did Sturm a disservice with his death scene. I mean, if he was going to die and go down swinging, he should have got more than one freaking swing in, man. But I am currently playing a paladin, and I will say that the changes to paladins in Five E really open up the class to make them more potentially fun to make them fit more campaigns because 
Back when a paladin had to just be lawful good, choosing to play a paladin was pretty, really kind of put an ankle cobble on your party sometimes, you know? And you could still go that route. And as a more mature adult, I could play a lawful good paladin and have a blast with it. Probably drive my party a little crazy, but still find ways to cross the line when I had to without losing, you know, any of my abilities. But that's just, you know, because I'm a better role player than I was when I was younger. But all that to say that I am actually playing a paladin now, currently in 5e, in Streams of Spiro, uh, where Benito is the storyteller, which you can click on the link for in the show notes if you want to check it out. And my paladin there is an Oath of Glory paladin named Zendrid, and I have a lot of fun with her. She's a drow, which, you know, has its own unique history and, like, complication with the way she relates to the surface world now that she's up there. On top of her paladinness, paladinhood? Paladinosity? Divine holy swordage. <laughs> yeah. And I don't want to go too much into her, because otherwise I'll wind up talking about Oath of Glory a little bit more than I want to, but I do really enjoy Oath of Glory. I think it's a good choice and can be a lot of fun. And it's got so many options in terms of the way you choose to play it. You can create a paladin who's a goody two-shoes, or a paladin who's kind of just out to get famous, no matter what the cost. It's all up to you. Um, and that new depth that they've added to paladins, that's something I'm excited to see the way that people play. As long yep. as they still try to play them paladin-like, as opposed to just turning them into the standard murder-hobo fighter of doom, but now they call themselves a paladin. Yeah. yeah. That's one thing I think that when we get into the subclasses that we're going to see has really opened up the paladin class, like you said, Glenn, is that now they can take so many different identities. They, uh, the, the paladin class, look, at the end of the day, much like the warlock class, the paladin class just has flavor for days. There is so much room to go with a character who has that level of, of, uh, of zeal and excitement. Like, you can go to the full-on, like, dark zealot everyone will be crushed under my heel if they step if they step out or defender of the innocence kind of you know like i'm i'm just supporting my community i'm i'm doing that sort of thing in kind of this in kind of this uh this wrapping of the oath that they swear it really reminds me of uh the there was a, a White Wolf setting um, that came out uh, probably ten years ago now, um, but it was it was the Hunter the Reckoning setting, um, and they had these various types of uh, of human plus type supernaturals, um, and they were they were very much paladins. You know, they kind of had three different uh, three different types of of uh, of characters. They were mercy type characters, zeal type characters, or vision type characters. You know, and that fits, I think, very neatly into sort of the the paladin mold here. At the end of the day, like I said, flavor for days on these. There's so many different directions that you can go with paladins now, versus you know how you're talking earlier about how you know in second and third edition they were really pigeonholed into into a very tight lane. Here's where I'm going to differ a little bit, and big surprise. I have played a large number of paladins, as Glenn said in a recent episode. That's we about recorded. as big a surprise as you are. Yeah, yeah. Glenn said somehow or another, every character you play becomes a, a, a paladin or paladin like. Yeah. Well, we we touched on that in the solo play episode too. We touched, which uh, which just came out a couple of weeks ago. But I can tell you that I never, I rarely felt that their lane was so tight that as to not allow for a lot of role play. But part of that is... Oh, there's plenty of room for roleplay. Right. But part of the, the way my thinking of Paladins comes from where I've gotten inspiration for them. Prior to playing D&D, having read versions of uh, King Arthur's Tales, excerpts and versions of Tristan and, and, and Isolde. In addition to that, I've looked at, uh, obviously, Superman, one of my favorite superheroes, very, quote-unquote, Paladin-like. Uh, there's a number of, uh, of instances where I've seen different ways where I can take a paladin character and really enjoy it. And I played them as very stern, very rigid, you can't do anything to the, I'm going to go along, but I'm really trying to tell you to do a different thing. And it has always come down to the same thing that I talk about all the time. If you have the right storyteller, Lots of things open. None of the things that are in these subclasses are not things that we that I could not have played previously. It's a choice as to whether I did or didn't. And in many cases, many of them, I have played versions of that in early editions. Having Benito as a storyteller, huge in getting to those ends. Huge. 
because he loves paladins and he is very good about creating the space for you to play and creating the environment where what you're playing against tests you, pushes you, questions you, but you're allowed to do. Um, and that's wonderful. So I played paladins very early. A lot of characters in second edition, when they came out with kits, I always took the most paladin like kit to go with things. I played a ranger just justifier, just a car, uh, which is effectively a ranger paladin, um, you know, and loved that character. Uh, I played a rogue in uh, second edition, carried over to third edition, um, uh, Razan Greystoke so well in his first entire campaign, everybody in the campaign was convinced he was a paladin. Yep. I remember being in that campaign convinced he was a paladin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's like, he must be a paladin. And I'm like, no, he's rogue. And Ashley did stuff through notes and see, and really nice underhanded roles all the time that nobody saw. You know, so there, there's just that thing. Paladins I absolutely love. However, where I that that's where I kind of semi-disagree and explain and expand on what you two have said. But where I absolutely agree and just want to celebrate and send up what you said is how well 5e opens it up. Where before it required some DM fiat or some homebrew to get there, now we've got a rule set that calls for it. Not just allows it, but calls for it. And when you say flavor for days, I say flavor for decades. This stuff is amazing. The hardest part about, and this is next 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 episode, but the hardest part about ranking the subclasses is, with the exception of the bottom one, none of them I didn't like. And I think my, uh, like all of them I liked, I, I have a character in mind for damn near every paladin subclass. And I can't say that about every other class. Well, we'll get into that when we start talking about the subclasses here in a little bit. Before we dive that, we want to we really peel back the lid on the Paladin class itself uh, and start talking about the rules in 5e that have supported that open play style uh, for the class in general. And I'm gonna I'm gonna dive right in with kind of the the first really great decision that was made about the Paladins, and that is like Warlocks, basing their spellcasting ability on Charisma. Now, it's a little bit different when you apply it to the Paladins than when you apply it to the Warlocks, because Charisma is most likely not going to be their principal stat, right? They're most likely going to be martial, so you're going to be talking about either strength or dexterity, depending on what kind of fighter, uh, what kind of uh, martial capability you're giving to them, but giving charisma as the spellcasting ability is absolutely a 100% the right move from a flavor point of view. Absolutely. I wonder whether it's the right choice from a mechanical point of view, because it means that early on you're going to have to decide whether or not you're focusing on your magic or focusing on your strength of martial, and your spells are never going to be strong enough to kind of overtake your martial ability in any way, but that's a whole separate argument. But that's just the downside of being a hybrid class, just like the right, ranger, exactly. yeah, being who's, already, who's already strength wisdom based. So I think that the cho choice to move Paladin off of wisdom was brilliant, because as opposed to being wise, per se, Paladins have a commanding presence. Yep. So I think it makes perfect sense. I agree with you. I think it's great that they did it. Uh, otherwise, what's the difference really between a ranger and a paladin besides one of them trains in a temple and one of them trains yep. in the woods? Fair enough. And I will say, too, that on, on that point, when we get uh, – again, we keep talking about the subclasses, but the subclasses that lost points for me were the ones that did not seem to make that transition well. There still seemed to be a bunch that were wisdom-based, and that lost points for me. So, I agree. Too many of the stuff in there and within it in the subclasses abilities is based on wisdom when they are now a charisma class and that needs to be changed. I, I believe that is a legacy holdover and I don't know why the decision was. It could have been balance. It could have been, my God, we gave these guys smite. Let's slow the roll. Or it could have been an oversight. I don't know which. Uh, I'm hope Could be the player's handbook was poorly written. Yeah. yeah, I'm hoping it was balance and not poorly written, but who knows? And, and again, my quibbles with their writing is more on a editorial basis than a content basis. But there are a few glaring content issues that could really be addressed. Now, 
so much to say. Um, I love the switch to charisma, and uh, I'm not going to repeat everything you said because, yes, to jump into what I thought was the biggest decision and best decision for the paladin was the decision to untether it from a specific deity. I thought that is the number one thing that has freed up this class to be usable by more players in more campaigns and in more different, better and unique ways is liberating it from a specific deity, still allowing for it, but liberating from it. And I think that was wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. They still definitely have that sort of touched from the divine feel to them. Absolutely. You know, but but you're right. The the and again, we talked about this in the show notes too uh, in our pre-show meeting about how they can be a champion of a cause. I guess is really kind of just the easiest way to go ahead and say it, and that is nice. Yeah, well, and the way to think about that, if that bothers you, because it does leave it a little bit gray and ambiguous. But what that means is you get to decide where that power comes from, and that's okay. You know, if you have a player who doesn't want to be a paladin of a god, but they want to serve the overall purpose, they swear their oath to the to the law for the oath of the crown, as an example. What's to say that in terms of the powers that they draw from the powers of law, where that power comes from? It's probably a combination of the various deities and forces that support the overall concept. So, you know, it's just a matter of how you choose to flavor or... or or connect it. Yep. Basically, frees up the storyteller to mold these things to their campaign, their campaign world. If you're playing in Faerun, many of the paladins will be tied to specific deities. However, if a player doesn't have a lot of Faerun lore, doesn't know the deity system in Faerun, or Greyhawk, or any other location, they can still play a paladin. And be perfectly okay. And I think that's a great thing. The other thing that I'll say about the Paladin class from a mechanical point of view, actually, actually I'm going to say a lot of things about the Paladin class from a mechanical point of view in the rest of this episode here today. But uh, Lou and Nika, you mentioned, you mentioned it kind of in passing when we were talking about, uh, about its spellcasting ability. Um, let's just be upfront. Smite is probably one of the strongest abilities in the game. Bar yeah, none across the classes, right? I think that you are right that even that within kind of the paladin mechanical rule set, because they have smite, they they don't get a lot of other really cool things. They get some nice things, but because the paladins have again the strongest ability in the game, they don't get a lot of other shiny baubles. I think that has made some interesting choices, some interesting things as we look at kind of the base the base paladin class here. The only ability I think that is on par, and it's only and it's situationally on par with Smite, is sneak attack. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, and because as the game has continued for the past six years, there are many many ways to gain either advantage or put a party member there, so you're consistently doing it. Now it is more limited; you can only do it one time, what have you. But Smite just it drops the smoke on people. I mean, it really does. Yeah. I mean, we, we've we have said before that the way to the way to be the most effective D and D player is to drop more dice more often, right? Yep. That's just the that's just the way it is. Yep. And now, I mean, on the upside, it is somewhat contained by the fact that um, if they're using their spells for other things, if if they're just not just a smite machine, um, but if they actually uh, they do make use of their other spells, then it's limited somewhat in the fact that. Uh, paladins don't have a huge number of spell slots and they don't get them back until a long rest. If they got it back after a short rest, like a warlock, obviously it would be way over the top. Um, although, you know, I, I think that there's probably a case to be made about making them tied to a long rest instead of a short rest does further to go ahead and uh, disincentivize a short rest for players. things that I wanted to kind of talk about with the Paladin class, and this is a, this is a very unique, uh, and this might actually be the only class that does this, is that when you start looking at the powers within the subclass, I'm going to talk about all the subclasses kind of as a whole. When you look at the powers that you get from the subclasses, 
they go all the way up to 20th level, which I'm of two minds about, right? I think that on one on one hand, that is a really great way to symbolize the the devotion that being a paladin requires. That that to epitomize paladinhood, you really need to be in and you need to be in all the way, right? The downside to that is that n- so few campaigns go to 20th level. Um that it is like it is how much of those higher level powers are going to get used. And I think when we start talking about the subclasses and we start talking about some of the 20th level powers, I think we're going to, we're going to understand kind of that they were very much afterthoughts in this. Um, again, it's kind of a chicken or egg situation. Did the, did the 20th level powers not get a lot of attention because games don't go that far or did games not go that far because 20th level powers don't get that much attention. Right. Um, but the other thing that I found is that because of the way that this is spaced out, because of the way that the powers uh, are acquired, Playing tier three as a paladin can be a real slog because there's really there's an absence of real advancement between levels ten to fifteen. Glenn, you're playing a paladin right now. What level are they? You know, I want to say they just turned ten, so okay. I can't really speak to the ten to fifteen yeah. gap. That's what I see reading the rules and not playing one. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say for sure that that's gonna be the case uh, or that it's even necessarily unique to Paladin. But I thought that that was a very interesting. It's just kind of the way that things laid out when I kind of like looked at when things come and how they come and and all that kind of stuff. I looked at like ten to fourteen, ten to fifteen, and was like, eh, that's gonna be tough. That's gonna be a tough. Yeah, they- they get a seventh level. The, all of the subclasses get a seventh, a fifteenth, and a twentieth. Yeah, exactly. So seven. Yeah. So that is a big gap there. Yep. You know, and at least between at least between like seven and ten, like you know, um, you've got or of protection coming at tenth level. You get protection from the frightened condition, and protection from frightened at tenth level uh, is is not nothing, right? That that is a really really nice power that you're getting at the right level, and it scales, right? Yep. So all the things that you would want to see from it from a kind of a kind of a a pinnacle ability uh, for tier two. So some things might be a bit campaign specific, depending on what pillar of the campaign your campaign is focusing on during that transition from tier two to tier three. But between seven and 15, a paladin is getting an O feature at seven, an ASI at eight. Uh, He gets a spell increase at nine. He gets an aura of courage at 10. He gets an improved divine smite at 11. He gets another ASI at 12, again, a spell increase uh, of, of note at 13, and 14, he gets the Cleansing Touch ability. You're right about them not getting very specific things for the subclasses, but the Paladin core class is notching up a couple really big things. Do I think it needs a little some, something extra? Yes. I think they could have done a really minor let's give them a skill let's give them some kind of expertise let's give them something in that 12 range to go along with these other things but i do know it it seems at the time that they were trying to keep things to generally speaking you get multiple things that when you get your subclass and then it's a largely one major ability uh, at the others so while i think it matched the design they're not hard up or not getting things, but they're not flashy things. It's not where a player gets to go after the game where he gets his level up, gets to pick and choose stuff. It's kind of, especially if you're playing D&D Beyond, everything just happens, right? It's like you have a new ability now. There's nothing really fancy. There's nothing really to write home about, you know, and I, and I think that's I think that's not great from a player standpoint, but there is some power. There are some power increases during that. I don't. I don't think it's completely flat. I'm totally with you on the 11th level increase in smite, right? Because smite being the most powerful ability in the game, getting more smite at level 11, totally cool. Cleansing touch at level 14 is not an ability that is placed at the right level. It, this is again it's one of those abilities that that someone in the writer room looked at and says, "Oh, this is going to be awesome." Cleansing touch, you get the ability to go ahead and and remove a magical effect, uh, remove a spell effect from a character, right? Problem is that by level 14, most characters are going to have some sort of magic resistance. And so um, I don't by by entering tier 3, characters are not going to have armor that grants them some sort of protection from magic. 
again, situational to some extent. Depends on how strategic your DM is. I mean, if he's yeah. using spells against you that can debuff. Then it yeah. becomes good. It's a debuff remover is basically what it's designed to be. It, and it, what it does is it's unlike a fighter who is almost exclusively soloing within a party, the paladin is assisting everybody in the party. The paladin becomes, in addition to a strong martial character, one of the better utility characters for the group. Yeah. And I think that makes Paladins very desirable. I mean, heck, if, if you ask me, could you play a game without a, 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 a cleric? Yes. I'd really like to have a Paladin, though. Um, in, the game I run, in the game I run on Monday nights, the number of times I hear, how close am I to Doran right now? Am I close enough because that saving throw you're about to make me roll, I don't think I'm going to make it. When I say <laughs> that happens often, I'm telling you it is – Three to four times a game per player. I have eight players. I actually specifically state I stay near Doran in combat whenever I can. There are three characters that judge where they are. When I say, what's your marching order? Everybody wants to know where the paladin is. That's awesome. And while the paladin may not, until they might seem flashy, believe it or not, from when you're sitting on the DM side, of the storyteller side of the screen... That's extremely flat. Terrifying. Yeah. I have to plan <laughs> for the paladin more so in some cases than I have to plan for a fighter. Because absolutely anything I'm doing debuffing, he's covered. Anything I do for harming, he's got the instant mini heal up till the cleric can get to them. Anything I've got that I think is real big and bad, as soon as he recognizes, okay, now's my moment. Woo! Uh, in my in my in my Saturday game, the paladin I have. I'm gonna pump a few smites into this bad boy. You know, I he rarely casts a spell. Anybody that listens to our Candlekeep actual play, Kilvarax at level ten or eleven is gonna be positively frightening. He is just now level four, and he's frightening. Um, in fact, I remember. Uh, uh, you know what? This episode hasn't aired yet, so I don't want to. I don't want to share too much. But there is an incident where uh, Kilvarax tries to uh, tries to turn something and. When he can't, the party gets really, really frightened until uh, until it was after the game when I explained to them why that didn't work. Uh, but in game, like there was a, there was tangibly yeah. the fact that Kilvarix could not take care of that was was uh, was not uh, was not popular. Um, and, and I you know I agree with you. The, look, the the as the support character, the paladin is fantastic. I really really like the lay on hands dice pool that they get for distributing hit points. Um, the mechanic isn't super elegant. But that's just a really handy thing to have in the toolbox when you're putting a party together, having another healer with really robust healing. Like that's that's a really, really nice ability. One of my favorite warlocks effectively has its own version of lay on hands. You know, the celestial warlock basically gets a dice pool that it can divvy out in much the same way a paladin can divvy out lay on hands. So that was one thing that we said when we did the warlock class. We were talking about the celestial warlock and kind of its parallels between a cleric. I think that we were wrong. I think that the pal I think that that the connection between the celestial warlock is much more like a paladin than a cleric. I think that's actually what we said. If you go back oh, did and we? listen, was paladin. Oh, yeah, I thought we said cleric. I'm not yeah. It could be wrong. Maybe think, we weren't wrong. Maybe we were. Right. I think we debated it, but I believe we landed on paladin. But I can tell you, I, I love, I love, love the ability cleansing touch because of what it means at that level for the parties. Like I'm running a game that is at level uh, eleven right now. Uh, my other game is at level just hit level twelve. Like we finished our Saturday game, and I told everybody go level up your characters to twelve. Those type abilities are exactly what the party is struggling with right now. It is mm, interesting. Okay, it is our beefy cleric who can barely be touched now has three or four conditions on his ass. Time to get rid of that. Uh, it, you know, when when area effects start stuff starts happening, you want cleansing touch. The challenge is not enough games get into tier three or deep enough into tier three where they see it often. So as we at storytell and get into those levels we're going to recognize how good some of these things are whereas we might not have in the past when it's just a, a stat on the page yeah okay i wondered how useful it would be but uh but maybe in your again 
so much of so many of these rules are situational according to the game that you're playing, right? Yep. To the DM uh, and how they're running the game. I can admit that I'm wrong. That's <laughs> that's fine. HK makes sure he knows where the paladins are uh, in Spiro too. Yeah. For exactly yep, totally. that reason. Because if I'm getting knocked down, it's almost always a condition issue. So I did have a question where I wanted to kind of I wanted to pick your brains a little bit. And this is about uh aura of protection, which I believe is the it's the seventh or eighth level ability that they get. Comes in at sixth. It's six. Okay, thank you. I have a question about what they mean by the term friendly creature and why they say it that way. And I, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna impart a little. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you guys, uh, the smarter, the smarter rules aficionados here, why friendly creature and why not like ally or allied creature or something like that? Because I think friendly creature, like here's here's the loophole that I can see as as a as a storyteller, right? Is that my paladin is running up against. Uh, the Edgelord Warlock, right? Um, and uh, the Paladin goes to use Aura of Protection, saying that the... Uh, uh, and he wants to use it on the Warlock. Me as the storyteller, I'm going to look at that Edgelord Warlock and say, is that Edgelord Warlock really friendly? Am I, am I just misreading the term here? So are, are you saying the Paladin's against the Edgelord? No, 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 that they're, running in the same, that they're running in the same party. That they're running in the same party. Right, but trying to convince the Edge Lord Warlock that he's a friendly creature when he is, you know, murdering bats and raising zombies, like so that's. I, a tough, I, I yeah. believe the word there is being used in terms in the, in the terms of friendlies versus combatants, friendlies versus enemies. Yep. Yeah, it's a poor word choice, though. You're 100 percent correct. That makes me feel better that you also agree that it's a poor word choice because I would think that like allied creature would just make so much more sense. But but here's my thought about that: if you're at a table where you're trying to use that and the, the storyteller, and actually I would say that would be a DM, not a storyteller, says, no, you can't use that on your party member that you've been adventuring with for six levels, that you share meals with, that you've shed, shed blood with, that you've saved a million times, uh, that has saved you a million times, but you're not friendly with him. Whether he's friendly to you or you're friendly with him, are, yeah. are not necessarily the same set of statements. So sometimes context is important. And when you look at the sentence, the context doesn't give you any other reason to assume or anything to, to define it. And that, that's where the, the gray area comes up. Because, I mean, technically when it says a friendly creature, so does that mean if you're, I mean, a friendly creature means they have to be friendly in general if you want to go with the literal translation. That's not even talking about somebody who's a friend or a friend to you. Like, if you happen to be friends with an asshole, the spell won't work on him. It'll only work on somebody who's nice to people. Damn, half my friends are out. Hell, I'm out. <laughs> I know, right? Y'all, y'all aren't getting our protection. Jeez, you know. But we're being a little nitpicky on that word. I mean, the the spirit of the word it, it can be can be seen pretty easily. So. Linguistic challenge aside, exactly. I do feel like aura of protection has one really really strong thing for it, and honestly, it is more of a matter of consistency throughout the paladin class. Something that we don't see a lot in other classes, but it's that it's that aura of protection scales, and it scales in the same way that everything else within the paladin class scales. It starts with a 10-foot range, and it goes to a 30-foot range. So it just gets bigger. And I think that, that that is something that you see kind of throughout, to the point that there's a subclass that doesn't do that. Uh, it does it differently. Um, and I actually call that out and take away mechanic points for it, because I think that the 10-foot to 30-foot rule is much better than the way that they did it in the other subclass. So, you know, other than that little linguistic quibble, I, th I like the consistency. It's a solid way to, to scale it too, you know, even without having to tie in, you know, proficiency bonus or anything else for the bonuses that go into it. Just the increase in the difference on the radius is is a solid, solid boost. All right. What else did you guys have uh, on your list about the, about the Paladin class here? Uh, I like the fact, uh, similar to aura protection scale, similarly in all the subclasses, I love the fact that the channel divinity is the core class and then every subclass flavors it differently like you all we all get channel divinity but i do it differently than you i, I thought that was fantastic that. yeah that to me just like you're saying it's brilliant because that is why so many of these classes have so much flavor that's what made ranking them very hard because at the end of the day the actual mechanics 
were the flavor because they were different, even though it was the same power. So they were defining the, the flavor, the character through the mechanics in a much more succinct way than they did with some of the other classes and subclasses. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally agree. Um, I also, I loved the way that they kind of spelled out the tenets of devotion for each of the subclasses, right? Yep. Um, that's like, that's really, really great. To at least give you a basis. Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, even if you want to change it or flush it out or, you know, create your own organization with its specific tenants and the vows involved, it gives you the basics of where to go with that was definitely a cool totally addition. Agree. Yep, totally and, agree. And kudos to Tasha's uh, Cauldron of Everything allowing those rewrites uh, during level ups because where like, hey, you want to change your subclass, go ahead and change your subclass at, at, at a given point. Uh, because I've got a character who, a player who's playing a paladin who has been questioning where he started and he may change, but now he doesn't have to not be a paladin. He gets to change the type of paladin. So he may have been a vengeance paladin for X number of levels, but now he can choose to be devotion or choose to be something else uh, because it works. You know, he, he I don't think he's made a final decision on what he's going to do. I'm interested to see what he has, but it's beautiful that the game has now has the mechanics to support that kind of narrative change. Honestly, I would have, I would have let it anyway. You know, uh, I would have definitely allowed a change like that anyway, because that's just the kind of storyteller I am. If it made narrative sense, I would say go for it. Uh, not any not any different than what Glenn allowed me to do in our Rifts game when I had what was the Rifts version of a paladin. Uh, he let me change to a shaman. I actually became a lot more warlock-like in that particular case. Uh, but And I still didn't change the absolute core. I just relaxed some of the tenants. I still role-played my discomfort, but it didn't become a... If you let this happen, you lose all your class abilities. Role played your discomfort. Bah. You had people surrendering to you going, I give up. And you're like, bam. I didn't hear them. I, <laughs> I, I did not do that. All right. Maybe not quite that extreme, but it was getting pretty close. You were nearly as cutthroat as the rest of them by the end. You had been corrupted. I, I can honestly say I did a whole lot of shooting first and fast. And I tried to go as, and get in as many actions as I could before they could speak. So, yes, there was a little bit of that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it was a good time, and it was fun to help you play through that. Um, because, you know, the full tenets of a lawful good character, uh, particularly with, like, honor on the line that involves the powers of your class, too, I mean, that's a big deal if you lose it. So it's... It's got to be handled carefully. Yeah, it's tough to be lawful good in the modern world. It is harder in 2020 and 2021 than years prior, in my opinion. Damn near impossible now, yeah. But it is a damn near difficult in a Rifts world and damn near more difficult in most D&D worlds. Uh, it's, it it's like being lawful hard. good in the world of darkness. Like, good luck. Yeah. yeah. They, have, so, they, they have a word for lawful good characters in the world of darkness, and that's victims. I was going to say food. So I didn't have a whole lot more specifically. We talked about most of their uh, non-subclass abilities by this point. You know, the only things we haven't touched on are pretty basic. Like, you know, they get to pick a fighting style, mm -hmm. but, you know, that's a fighter and everything else. But, yeah, yeah it's definitely cool to be yep. able to take those martial hybrids and still apply the fighting style to it. Um, because it, it just gives you that ability to specialize and, and make your, your signature move or fighting style a little bit more impressive you also get the extra attack to help you keep up with the fighter a little bit since you're only going to be half a spellcaster. um so all in all solid melee choice especially once you throw in the divine power of divine smite to just crank that up a notch but on top of that they also are a solid backup healer and they have some really great utility magic so overall i mean they're one of the better hybrid classes to have in the game just having their auras by themselves, which Lee was mentioning earlier, who can be closest to the paladin, because it's an ability that you don't even have to, you don't have to do anything or activate or spend an action on. In terms of action economy, you're providing your party benefit just by standing there, yep. and it doesn't get a whole lot more efficient than that. As long as you're conscious, you're aiding your party. That's pretty cool at no resource loss. 
All right. We're going to be talking about subclasses in our next episode, but I want to go ahead and wrap up this episode. Again, I'm going to throw you guys a, uh, a screwball question uh, and see how you respond live on the radio. Ready? If you had to pick right now, not based on subclasses, but just based on the class, the class abilities themselves, right now you've got to pick, are you playing a paladin or are you playing a warlock? I know where I'm going. Lewanika, let's start with you. Oh, that is not a screwball question. That's a stab me in my heart and soul question. <laughs> and, he, and, and here's why I'm yeah. going to say that. I'm going to answer why, and then I'm going to honestly answer your question. I have mad love for both. I think both are phenomenal. I do think the specific campaign and the campaign needs are important. And generally, I always pick my character last. I like to be the last player to pick their character. That way, I can do what benefits the group. I like to be a team player in that regard. So I'll go with Plus, everybody remembers need. who gets picked last. Yeah, uh, that too. Probably more that. That's the rogue in me. Uh, and I'm glad you didn't say rogue because that would have been my quick answer. So now, yeah. <laughs> now, now that I've preambled for you know a, a dog's age, I'll go ahead and answer the question. After having recently done the Warlock episode, and I'll deep dive into both, and now having done the research and prep for the first half of the Paladin episode before I've done the subclasses episode, I can honestly say I'm probably playing a Paladin. Cool. All right. And I would not have said that before I did the research on this. Like, before I researched both, I probably would have gone Warlock. In fact, I had a choice to probably do but one or the other, and I chose Warlock. That's why I played one of those, and I have not played a 5e Paladin yet. But after this, man, this is going to be hard. I've got people that want me to play a Rogue next, but I'm seriously looking at playing a Paladin. All right, Glenn, how about you? For me, it's easy. I'm currently playing a Paladin and enjoying her quite a bit. Um, I have not played a Warlock in 5e yet, so I would choose Warlock. If I were rolling up a character right now with a choice between the two, I'd go Warlock just for the experience. Cool. For me, it's also an easy choice. I would play Warlock also. And it's because of the just the depth of customization that you get when you are uh, when you start uh, building a warlock nice the kit class that they built the way they kit built warlock as a kit class is is astounding it's, it's the most it's customizable astounding. class yeah, in the absolutely. game absolutely yeah. yep now i mean that with no disrespect to the paladin because i think i could really enjoy it like I, as someone who has never played a paladin before i think i would really really enjoy playing a paladin um and i think that it is you know, if Warlock is probably my favorite class in 5e right now, based on the ones that we've already talked about, I think I think Warlock is the is my favorite. But man, it's it's really a 1a, 1b type situation with Warlock and Paladin. So my challenge is, is I think Warlock is more universal. I would not want to play a Paladin in every game I've ever been in. But I could very happily play a Warlock, a Warlock, in every game I've ever been in. There are games where I think a paladin really fits nicely and it's what I want to do. And there are games I've been in that I'm like, I would not have the best time playing a paladin because Storyteller A, BMB, there's just a lot of factors as to whether or not I'm going to get to bring out the paladin. If a storyteller isn't creating the situations where these powers take effect like if there if he never uses conditions you've just made a lot of what i get useless whereas you can't necessarily do that to a warlock because of what they are all the get get magic i've i've always got something that can be used and honestly every couple levels i can switch out my uh, invocations to change it up to fit the campaign specific i may not have the right ones when i started but the next time i I get to make that change. I can get the right ones for the campaign. And uh, I think that's where, that's where I, I don't know if I'd want to play one in every campaign, yep. but I that's really fair. want to pay, play one badly. Like I really want to play a paladin. All right, gentlemen, let us wrap up this episode for now. Uh, everybody out there listening, please tune in next week. We are going to dive into uh, all nine subclasses, uh, the Oaths of Devotion uh, for the Paladin class. Hope that you enjoyed this uh, this first episode here and that it has, uh, has uh, uh, wet your whistle, uh, intrigued your palate, uh, 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 stoked your imagination because uh, the, the, the Paladin class is really, it's a fantastic class. So um, 
tune in next week when we talk about the subclasses. I uh, hope that you enjoyed this episode. But don't worry, at least one of them still total crap. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, there's always one that's total crap. Although I think that when we start looking at the scores, there's some very interesting, uh, very interesting things in the scores for these. Uh, uh, just to put it in perspective, uh, all three of us had a clear favorite, and none of us agreed on what that clear favorite was. And the other two, pretty much similarly, thought the one that was the clear favorite for the other one uh, was awful. So there you go. So that'll be a fun time. It'd be, uh, I'm sure, no no spirited discussion at all next episode uh, about that particular uh, statistical anomaly. It will be a very sad and surprising day when we all so <laughs> much agree as to make an episode boring. I know. I know. Exactly right. Yeah. And I can promise you we will not air an episode that is boring. If Next we week find- will not be boring. I promise you. We cannot make that promise. At some point we might be boring. It could mm, that's true. We're human. Uh, yeah, I don't- maybe when we're old. I don't think so. <laughs> so. We are spirited individuals dedicated to a cause. My oath of de- my oath of devotion is to making it interesting. Paladins, thank you everybody much for listening. Uh, we, thank you everybody for listening, and we will talk to you again next week. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. You can join us at www.ttjourneys.com, where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. And make sure you join our growing online community. You can follow us on Twitter at TT Journeys and join us on Facebook just by searching Tabletop Journeys there. You can also reach us by email at podcast at ttjourneys.com. And if you want to catch early access to our episodes and some of the other benefits we have coming down the pipeline, you can also support our production at patreon.com slash ttjourneys. If you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, Audible, or any other podcast platform, we would really appreciate if you would like and subscribe to the podcast. Full episodes come out every week on Saturdays and every Wednesdays. We'll feature our SideQuest series where we talk about pretty much anything tabletop-oriented. Thank you all so much for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And in the words of another traveler on our path, we bid you shade and sweet water.